from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York. It's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who spent 15 years in the NFL after his college Hall of Fame career at Brigham Young University, where he was a two-time All-American. He was selected by the Bears in the first round of the 1982 NFL Draft as a fifth overall pick, and just three years later, he achieved his greatest professional success with the 1985 Bears team that won the franchise's first Super Bowl title in Super Bowl XX. He also received Pro Bowl honors during that season. Eleven years later, he would conclude his NFL career, adding his second Super Bowl ring in a backup role on the Packers in Super Bowl XXXI. He's been an advocate for CTE awareness in his post-playing career and will be the subject of a much-anticipated documentary, Mad Mac, The Memory of Jig McMahon, due out spring of this year. It is a thrill to welcome the man who can't dance but can throw the pill, the punky QB known as McMahon. Welcome, Jimmy. How you doing? Hey, guys. Good to talk to you. It's always great speaking to you for sure. Over the years, you know, we've spoken to so many athletes here whose families moved around a lot when they were young and found out that sports was such an important part of them filling in in their new places that they moved to. Did the same hold true for you as a young kid? Well, yeah, I moved from, I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and then I uh, moved to San Jose, California when I was almost three years old. And so from from three until I was 16, I was there, and then I moved my junior year in high school uh, from San Jose up to Roy, Utah, and that was, uh, <laughs> that was quite a difference, <laughs> not only culturally, but sports-wise. So, so that particular move, I have to imagine, is just, I can't even imagine that because you become the starting quarterback for Andrews Hills High School as a sophomore in San Jose, and then you move to Roy, Utah, and, and Roy was not, you know, easy one because you, you became, it was an easy one because you became the team MVP in three sports at Roy High School. You twice led Roy to the state championship, named All-State senior after passing for 1,555 yards, 16 touchdowns. I know your mother, Roberta, told you at an early age to believe that you were the best that you are, that, that you were the best. And if you didn't believe it, nobody else would. How much did those words help you when you had to reestablish yourself in a new town such as you did in Roy? Well, that, well, that was actually my dad's words. My mom's words were, if you don't do your schoolwork, you're not going to play anyway. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was really a tough move for me. Um, like you said, I was, I was starting as a sophomore in San Jose. And, and there we, you know, we threw the ball a lot out there. We had passing leagues in the summer and that's all we did was throw the football. So, uh, moving up to Roy, uh, these guys were running the wishbone, you know, the three backs behind the quarterback and, you know, I'm, I'm pit, you know, faking and pitching. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't even know what the hell I was doing half the time, but, uh, yeah, it took, it took a little bit of <laughs> probably a couple of weeks of practice before I got the starting role up in Utah, but it was, it was just a tough adjustment. <clears throat> it's interesting too, because the, the McMahon persona was already taking shape back then. And you chose to go to BYU, which at that time, and still is a no nonsense school. So why BYU? And what were some of your other options? You also played baseball at BYU 
when did football become your primary focus? And do you think that if you'd stayed with baseball, you might have been a Major League Baseball player? Uh, well, I, I'd like to believe I would have been. Baseball was always my first love. <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to play baseball. <clears throat> and that's the reason I ended up at BYU. There was only, of all the colleges, I took trips. I went back to Nebraska, Oklahoma State, uh, Boise, uh, all the Utah schools. And, and all, everybody said I couldn't play both sports except for Brigham Young and Nevada, Las Vegas. And Vegas is where I wanted to go. I mean, I, that was my last, my last recruiting trip. I had a great time. And plus I got offered, you know, I got offered a house, a car, money, easy job at a casino. I mean, hell, who knows what could have happened there? I, you know what? I don't, I don't think it would have been good to be honest, but, but let's not even go there because that choice to go to BYU would actually pave the way to the Miracle Bowl, December 19th, 1980. Up to that point, BYU had never won a bowl game in school history having lost the 74 Fiesta Bowl, the 76 Tangerine Bowl, as well as their first two Holiday Bowls in 78-79. And for the first 56 minutes of the 1980 Holiday Bowl, it seemed that the Cougars were destined to another defeat. Uh, your defense couldn't handle SMU's Pony Express, Craig James and Eric Dickerson. James ran for 225. Dickerson added another 110. Four minutes left in the game, Mustangs score to take a commanding 45-25 lead. A lot of the fans started leaving, you start screaming at them that the game wasn't over. So take us through what you remember about that comeback, which may in fact be the greatest in bowl game history. Well, <clears throat> up to that point, I was, you know, I was very disappointed in my performance. I didn't play well <clears throat> the whole first half. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we couldn't stop them on defense. We couldn't get the ball in the end zone <laughs> offensively. So <clears throat> the second half, things started, you know, working the way they were all year long. You know, I started <clears throat> making better reads, throwing the ball better. You know, so we're going back and forth. And like you say, four minutes to go, we're, they're up 20. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're making a drive, and it's fourth down. And I think it was fourth and two. And the uh, coaches send in the punting team. And I'm like, hell no, we're not, we're not punting. I said, get in the huddle. You know, made the offense get in the huddle. We had to burn a timeout because we, I wouldn't come off the field. <laughs> when I did come over there to talk to the coaches, I said, you know, what the hell's going on? I said, we kicked now. We got no shot. I said, I'm not going down by, you know, by punting. And uh, they, the Lavelle and the coordinator looked at each other. They, they didn't know really what to do. And I said, the hell with this. I, I'm, I said, we're not punting. So I went back in and, <laughs> and I called uh, just a simple on, at the line of scrimmage play, I had, I had a balance set offensively, and for some reason they weren't covering the our All-American tight end. So I just made a simple call, a, a, a slant out to Clay. We got the first down. We go down and score. Uh, we kick an onside kick. We get the ball. We go down and score again. <laughs> and then we try another onside kick. We don't get it, but we finally stopped him on defense. And uh, we blocked the punt with 18 seconds left in the game. We get the ball back close to midfield. And so we had time for three plays, no timeouts. And so uh, I think I remember the first play, we, I just threw it out of the end zone. And the second play, I threw a, a horrible pass, thank God. Had I thrown a good pass, it was probably either going to be picked or, or, or Clay would have, I was throwing it to Clay Brown. And he probably would have got tackled and we would have, time would have expired. <laughs> and so now there's three seconds left in the game. And, and we practice the play uh, that we used 
every day, or not every day, but every, every week we practice this play, and we just call it the save the game pass. And basically, everybody just get down to the end zone, and the first guy to get there, if you can't catch it, tip it, and uh, somebody else catch the ball. And in the way it happened, I threw it up, and uh, Clay Brown was, was surrounded by three or four uh, SMU guys, and they all go up, and Clay was the, the guy that didn't jump the highest, and, and the ball never touched those guys. It, it came straight down to Clay. So it was, uh, you know, some divine intervention there that night. And then obviously our kicker came in, kicked the extra point to win it. So it was a pretty fun comeback. It was nice to be uh, on the winning side of a bowl team yeah. for BYU. An amazing comeback, one of the best of all time. And you can see that on YouTube. It's definitely worth watching. You're selected fifth overall by the Chicago Bears in the first round of the 82 NFL draft. But you really thought you were headed to Baltimore. In fact, you even had dinner with the legendary Johnny Unitas prior to the draft. What was that like, and was it a shock that you weren't taken by the Colts? Uh, yes, <laughs> it was a shock because all indications were that's where I was going. <laughs> like you said, I had I had uh, met with Johnny at his restaurant. You know, we talked about the city and you know, how much fun it was going to be there and this and that. And so, uh, you know, I, I really thought I was going to end up in Baltimore. But then uh, my agent at the time also had, uh, I, I think his name was Curtis Dickey, the running back that they yeah. had. Uh, and they were having trouble signing him. And so my agent told those guys, don't bother drafting me because they'll never sign me. And so, but he didn't relay that to me until after the draft. <laughs> he had just, I guess I had told him early on, I said, I really don't want to be playing in Baltimore. And so, you know, he, he remembered that, and he, but he didn't tell me before the draft that that's what happened. And so when, when Baltimore drafted uh, uh, Arch Leister right ahead of Chicago, I'm like, Wow. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's going there, but now where the hell am I going to go? And then Chicago was next in line and they took me. So that's how I ended up in Chi-Town. Which is amazing because you have an immediate impact on that franchise. You win the starting job as a rookie named NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year that season. 84, you lead the Bears to the NFC Championship game where you're beaten by the 49ers. You're the quarterback of one of the best teams of the 80s. And even though those Bears teams were mostly recognized for their dominant defense, you ran an extremely highly efficient offense that averaged 28.5 points per game. Do you think that your status as a quarterback is underrated? You know, 28.5 points a game is pretty impressive. I, I know that defense was smothering, but do you think that's one of the reasons that you aren't mentioned as one of the, the top quarterbacks of all time? Well, I mean, statistic-wise, I don't have any stats. you got to have statistics to be talked about, you know, well, wait a minute. When you say you don't have any stats, I mean, I looked at this, and your winning percentage as a starter is higher than probably about 20 or, or 25 guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Your completion ratio is higher than Namath. It's higher than, than a number of players. When you say you don't have the statistics, I mean, there's an argument there. You, you're, you're there. Well, I didn't, I didn't play with hardly any games. Hell, I only played – hundred something games in my career, 110, 15 games, something like that. So, uh, you know, I've missed a lot of ball games, but, you know, playing in that offense in Chicago, it's not one to, uh, it's not one to get a lot of stats on, you know, but like you said, <laughs> winning percentage was what I was always worried about anyway. I didn't care what really what my stats were uh, as long as we won the ball game. Uh, you know, I came from uh, the most prolific offense I'd ever played in in college. You know, I got to throw it all over the field, but, you know, going to Chicago, I got to hand it off a lot. 
<laughs> uh, which wasn't a bad thing. Handed it off to number 34, Walter Payton. Yeah, sweetness uh, could run, that's for sure. And, uh, but I, you know, I told Coach Dick that we argued about it a lot. I said, why don't we throw it to him? He's a hell of a receiver. You know, we don't have to run him into a brick wall all the time. And uh, I just, I didn't get that done very often. Well, you, you did kind of like mention about the completion ratio, and I, I hate to bring this up to you, but in that Super Bowl season, you know, Walter Payton did have a higher completion ratio than you. He was three for five with a touchdown as well. Uh, pretty amazing. But, you know, it's so amazing that even though football is such a team sport, when it comes to the Super Bowl, it's always the quarterbacks that the spotlight is on the greatest. Take us through what it's like being a starting quarterback, you know, the, the week before the Super Bowl. What are some of the things that went through your mind that might be going through the mind, you know, of Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady right now? Well, hopefully they won't be getting death threats all week. You know, I, that's what I had to deal with that uh, down in New Orleans. Uh, some idiot reporter went on television and said that I had called all the women of New Orleans sluts and that the men were stupid. And where he got that information, I have no idea because I never even talked to the guy. I never did an interview with him. But uh, for, for four days, I was getting death threats. We had the hotel was getting picketed by the women and, and, uh, and we practice at the old Saints facility, which was right by an apartment complex. And so everybody, you know, nobody wanted to stand by me at practice. I was wearing a different jersey. Everybody thought I was going to get shot. And so uh, that's that's really the only thing I remember about that week. Don't don't remember much of the game. Uh, I just wanted to get the hell off the field when that when that gun went off. And uh, you know, I didn't stick around on the field to, to do all those festivities. I ran right to the locker room, got dressed, and got the hell out of town. <laughs> wow, that's a little scary. And, and you know, you take a look at what you did in that game; it makes it even more impressive, for sure. As you know, and you say you don't remember it, but as the clock's starting to wind down, was there a moment where the magnitude of the fact that you know you're, you're going to be the Super Bowl champ? You know, when did that moment hit? And, and what was that initial feeling that everything you've strived for, you know, came true at that moment? Well, th that moment happened about halftime. I mean, <laughs> we knew the game, the game was pretty much over at halftime. But, uh, yeah, it was just a culmination. It, it was my fourth year in the league. And like you said, we just we lost the NFC Championship the year before. We knew we had a good young football team. And uh, it, was just, it was just great because we put in four years of hard work. And uh, it was great to end up with a with a win, uh, and then the next uh, the next four years, uh, or actually the next three years, we had home field advantage throughout the playoffs. You know, we went fourteen and two the following year. It wasn't like we we disappeared off the planet. And then the next two years, and we went through a strike in '87, but still ended up. Uh, I think we were eleven and five that year, and then I think twelve and four in '88. We lost the NFC Championship game in Chicago. So. So in that five-year stretch, we went to three NFC Championship games and only only won one Super Bowl. So I was pretty disappointing about that. Yeah, in fact, the year you went to the Super Bowl, you did not lose a game as a starter, 11-0, and then all those playoff games. The only one game was you, know, you were not in that game the year that they lost that one game. Uh, you played for a lot of big-name, big-personality head coaches in your career. Mike Ditka, Dan Henning, Buddy Ryan, Rich Kotite, Danny Green, Mike Holmgren, as well as a preseason stint with Bill Belichick for the Browns, even though you won't find your regular season stats anywhere for that time with the Browns. Which coach do you feel got the most out of your talent and why? And which is the one coach that felt you just didn't get you? Uh, 
Well, I think the best coach that I played for was was Mike Holmgren in uh, in Green Bay. I thought he, you know, he he, he worked us when we needed to work, but uh, you know, when it was time to have a little fun, we got to do that. Uh, you know, I spent seven years with Coach Ditka. Uh, I think his his best. What he did best for Chicago is when he first got there, his his first year was mine as well. And he got rid of, you know, six, seven-year veterans that, that were just kind of hanging around collecting checks. And uh, he got young guys in there who wanted to work because we definitely worked. I mean, we probably worked harder than any team in the league. You know, all our drills were live. We didn't have any buddy-buddy drills at all, uh, especially with Buddy Ryan and Mike Dickett didn't like each other. So every practice was like a game. And uh, I think that took its toll on us after a while. You know, you, you beat the hell out of each other for three three days a week in practice. I mean, Sundays were easy. And uh, that's that's how it was. I think that we just got tired of doing that after four or five years of, of beating the hell, hell out of each other. And then uh, after practice, you know, he, he used to run us to death. So <laughs> we didn't get out uh, conditioned, I don't think. That's for sure. So, you know, a component of the radio show is also we, we stream live. So someone... Uh, out in Chicago, uh, Rich Weiss wanted me to ask you this. If you uh, remember Northbrook, Illinois, uh, you used to live there 21 years ago when he lived there. And rumor had it you had one of the, the nicest racquetball courts in Illinois and you were like a, a top racquetball player. Is that true? Yeah, well, actually, yes. When we, I lived in a townhouse my first uh, five years or six years, actually, when I was in Chicago. And then... Uh, Found some property, built built a house, and uh, the only thing I really wanted in the house was the racquetball court. You know, I told my wife, I said, do whatever you want with the rest of the house, but basement's going to be pretty much a fun center. I had a, a workout room, a, a racquetball court, had a steam and sauna, a sauna in there, a uh, pool table, big screen down in the basement. So it was <clears throat> that was kind of the boys' room downstairs. But it was, yeah, I played a lot of racquetball. That's basically all I did to stay in shape because I, I hate it. I can't just go out and run. And uh, but I could play racquetball, you know, four or five, six hours a day and not really. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have to run as much playing six hours if I would have to go out and run a couple miles. So <laughs> I enjoy playing that. Listen, leave it to our listeners. That's one thing that I did not know about you. But now now we know that. So, you know, I, I want to get back to about where you're rated in, in the game. And you said you didn't play enough games. But if you look back at your NFL career and you put it in the context of all NFL starting quarterbacks over the history of the game, you realize that you rank 63rd in all-time wins with 67 as a starter. And you have a better winning percentage than Stabler, Unitas, Elway, Favre, Greasy, Aaron Rodgers. When you put that in, in context, does that mean something to you? I mean, you know, in the top 100 of wins all time is pretty impressive. Well, like I said, winning was the uh, only stat that I, I really cared about. So, <coughs> yes, I, I didn't realize I, ha I was that high up in the statistics, but. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so your, your post-playing career, you've been an advocate for CTE awareness since your playing days ended. There's so much going on on that front. This past week, there was an amazing article on Dan Carcillo, the former NHL player, who found that hallucinogenic mushrooms have given him relief. What are some of the things that you're involved with? And I understand you're partnering with a, a few former NFL players at this point as well. Right. Kyle Turley, Ricky Williams, and uh, even Britton. <laughs> We're uh, having a company called Revenant, and it's uh, a lot of cannabis products. And uh, I haven't seen them all yet. We're just kind of getting this thing started. So 
I'm looking forward to the for the partnership and and for what it's going to do for the you know not only athletes but for for everybody else. I mean this this plan has been demonized for so long and and, and it's just now coming out at how good it really is for us. I mean we have a, a system in our bodies called the endocannabinoid system. Why is that there if we're not supposed to be using this plant? You know, it's just a it's a it's a healing herb. It's not a drug. And uh, people are finally starting to realize that, and they're getting off these opioids and and everything else that's very addictive and that kills people. You know, the cannabis hasn't killed anybody, so that's uh, the way to go. And then mushrooms, uh, <laughs> again, that's a naturally grown or naturally occurring deal in the earth. So most natural products aren't going to hurt you. And you have firsthand now. I mean, you were you suffered greatly right after your career, and you found tremendous relief as well. Correct? No doubt about it. You know, not only was my I was having the head problems, but the uh, I was still taking painkillers, probably for five years after I retired, just to get through the day. And uh, yeah, finally, I, it just got to the point I I I, could, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the pills and and. Uh, I finally, I moved out to Arizona in 2010, got my medical card and, and been using nothing but cannabis ever since. I haven't had a, haven't had a pain pill in 20 years or a little, a little less than 20 years. That's awesome. Lastly, one week from today, the legendary quarterback Tom Brady versus the future legend. And I, you shouldn't even say that because he's already legendary in Pat Mahomes. Who wins the Super Bowl and why? Well, I've, I was wrong on the uh, NFC side already. People asked me a couple weeks ago, uh, Tampa Bay was playing against the Saints, and I, I guess the Saints had beaten them twice already. And I, I headed down to my house in Mexico. I was down there for 10 days, so I didn't see that game. I didn't see the Green Bay-Tampa game. Uh, and I was very surprised when I got home and heard that Tampa was going to the Super Bowl. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping Kansas City because uh, – Andy Reid's a good buddy of mine. Andy was my left tackle in college. I've known him since, you know, the mid-70s and or late 70s. And, uh, and I think he's done a hell of a job with coaching in the NFL. And I just, uh, sentimental pick would be the Chiefs. But you, 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 can't, you can't really go against Tom. I mean, hell, he's been there, what, 10 times in 17 years, 18 years, or how many years he's even played? I can't remember. It's, um, it's unbelievable. It really is. You know, just and just this run going on with a new team. You know, a lot of people said that you know it's Belichick's system, but then he brings Gronk back out of retirement and, and makes a run to the Super Bowl. It, it's an unbelievable story. It's going to be a great Super Bowl. I'm going with Kansas City. I, I I cannot. I mean, I love Mahomes. I love everything he brings. Um, just the the swagger, a lot like the swagger you brought. I just like him. And listen, it's going to be tough to beat Brady, but I actually I'm going 41-34. But uh, I've been wrong a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't even guess the score. But like you said. I, Sentimental pick. I'd like the Chiefs to take that win. Awesome. Jimmy, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for so many exciting Sundays watching you play. And, of course, thanks for the Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> yeah, that thing just won't go away. Nope. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, be good and good luck, man. All right. Thank you. You got it. The legendary Jim McMahon. Great spot with Jim.